0: And so we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 8 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or, uh, or on your apps, on your phones, uh, but we'll also have the text on the screens next to me so you'll be able to read along there. Once again, we'll be in 2 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 1, and uh, I'm going to read verse 1 through 15. Okay, well, if we're all ready, then we're going to go ahead and get started in Second Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, and took Methag Amma from Philistine control. He also defeated the Moabites, and after making them lie down on the ground, he measured them off with a cord. He measured every two cords lengths of those to be put to death and one full length of those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's subjects and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control at the Euphrates River. David captured 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers from him. He hamstrung all the horses and kept 100 chariots. When the Aramaeans of Damascus came to assist king Hadadezer of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 Aramean men. Then he placed garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Arameans became David's subjects and brought tribute. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. David took the gold shields of Hadadezer's officers and brought them to Jerusalem. David also took huge quantities of bronze from Betah and Barothai, Hadadezer's cities. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer he sent his son Joram to king David to greet him and to congratulate him because David had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for toy and Hadadezer had fought many wars Joram had items of silver gold and bronze with him king David also dedicated these to the lord along with the silver and gold he had dedicated from all the nations he had subdued when Edom Moab, the Amalekites, the Philistines, uh, I'm sorry, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehab, king of Zobah. David made a reputation for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in Salt Valley. He placed garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites were subject to David. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Have you ever, maybe in in, uh, the morning, first thing in the morning you get up, you you wake up, you're so a little groggy, and you get your warm cup of coffee, and you open your Bible for your devotion— and you're just looking for some inspiration that day. Or maybe it's been in the evening after a long day and you're, you're tired. Maybe you're, you're tired, you know, physically, you're tired emotionally. And so, you know, I need to go to God's Word. I want to go to God's Word, try to, um, try to seek His Spirit and gain some inspiration and some help for just the, the, the things I've been experiencing, the confusions I've been having. And so I just need some inspiration from God's Word, something to help me out today. And so you open up God's Word and then you read something like 2 Samuel chapter 8. <laughs> right? You're just looking for that inspiration that you need that day, something to give you a little bit of boost or something to bring some clarity. And then you read about David striking down 18,000 Edomites and, doing, and striking down the Philistines and striking down the Amalekites. And you're like, well, okay then. <laughs> right? What do you do with it? What do you do with a text like 2 Samuel chapter 8? In other words, is there anything for us to get out of this? Is there anything for us to get out of this? It seems so far removed from what we experience in our day-to-day, right? It's okay to admit that, that sometimes we come to these, these stories and it's, it's a little difficult to, to say, to figure out what do we do with it? What does it mean for us? Is there any relevance of it to our life? So the question is, what do we do with a text like this one or like really any other where it might be difficult at first to understand? My goal is to try to help you understand how to read Scripture, not just today, but every week. And the way that I I teach, I hope that one of the things that it helps you to do over time is to start to learn how to appreciate, how to approach, and how to read and then apply Scripture for yourself in your own life. So that on those days where you do wake up in the morning or at the evening you open the bible trying to find some inspiration and you come across a hard passage you don't just say ah, i'm going to jump to the new testament <laughs> or, i'm going to jump over to the psalms look sometimes i'm not i'm not saying against that sometimes it's okay it's okay to just go to something that's easy cuz you need it but on the other hand i do want us to understand that we have something to learn about 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 god about christ about the gospel and about how we ought to live from every page of Scripture. In order to do that, we just need to make sure that we approach it in the right way and that we treat it in the right way so that we can learn how to apply it in the right way. That's my goal every single week, and I hope that, like I said, over time you start to learn how to do that, and it's benefiting you in your Bible study. And that's my goal today as well, that through reading this story of David's kingdom expanding, we might learn some principles about the kingdom of God which exists to this day, which is expanding even in our day, and will continue to expand until his work of the kingdom is complete. So what we learn about what God is doing through David's kingdom here applies to lessons that we can learn about God's kingdom and how it operates today. So as we consider the lessons of the kingdom that we can learn from this story and apply to today, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the promises that were fulfilled Secondly, we're going to look at the conquest that was achieved, and then lastly, the blessings that were multiplied. So, the promises fulfilled, the conquest achieved, and then blessings that were multiplied. One of the problems that we that that I think happen and that prevent us from being able to really understand Scripture well, and uh, and to see how here's the thing: very very often, the Bible is extremely clear. Very, very often. There, now, I say that because there are a few passages that are a little bit harder and they take a little bit, bit more study and, and work to get. But 97% of the time, the Bible is extremely clear and it's actually very simple. It's very clear and simple, but the problem is that we read it really poorly, and so that holds us back from getting some of the clear and simple lessons that we have to learn from Scripture. One of the things that I think adds to this and that often makes the the, the discerning the meaning of a passage of Scripture kind of hazy and difficult to get is that we like to uh, pull out a passage of Scripture, isolate it from everything that happened before and after it, and then just read it alone as if we can, you know, understand what this story or what this teaching is all about completely pulled out of its context, Okay. Whenever we read the Bible, no matter where it is—if it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, if it's in a narrative like this, or if it's uh, in—even if it's in—if it's in Proverbs, Psalms, if it's one of Jesus' parables—context is king. Think of it this way: the Bible is like a jigsaw puzzle. The Bible is like a jigsaw puzzle. If you take uh, one piece blindly out of a package of of a jigsaw puzzle, and you try to make out from that one piece. What does this image mean? How much luck are you going to have? Now, look, if it's one of those puzzles, the ones that I'm the best at, that only have about six pieces to them, you know, they're made for ages, you know, three to eight, then, then maybe from one piece you can gather a, a, a good idea of what the picture is. But from the puzzles that are 1,500 pieces, there's, there's tons and tons of pieces to them. You're not going to be able to figure it out you got to put the pieces together. And if you have this one piece and you can't figure out what it is, but then you place it into its context where it belongs in the puzzle, oh, and then it reveals a picture. The Bible's the same way. And the chapters, the verses, are those jigsaw pieces. We need to place them into their context, and then, oh, okay. Then it sheds a lot of light. Then we can start to see a picture. So here we have this story of David... <laughs> Uh, there's this uh, term today that's used on social media, usually in regards to someone who, I don't know, does something really impressive, and we say that they slayed, right? David's slaying here in multiple senses, right? He's he's having a lot of victories, but it's actually coming at the cost of actual blood. So we have this story here of David slaying, literally, that might be really, uh, it's it's shocking to us. What do we do with it? Put it into the piece into its context right before this. You guys might remember this. We, we looked at this before Easter, okay? And if you weren't here with us, you can, you can read it. In the chapter right before this, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in the chapter right before this, David says, uh, you know what? I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build him a temple because I'm living in a palace, but the Ark of the Covenant, which was seen as where the presence of God is, it was still residing in just a tent. And so he says, I'm going to build God a house in a sense, so that uh, the presence of God may have rest. But then God comes to him and he says, you're not going to build me a house, David. He says, you're not going to give me rest. I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to give you rest. What well, he means by that, he says, I'm going to make your kingdom, your throne, secure from any challenge to your authority. Now, what would be the greatest challenges to David's authority? What does he need rest from to make his, uh, his uh, throne secure? without be his surrounding enemies. God comes to him. He says, David, I'm going to give you rest. He says, I'm going to establish your throne. I'm going to build you a house. He says, I'm going to make a name for you. He makes all of these promises to David. You see that in the first half of uh, chapter 7. And then in the second half of it, David sings this song of praise as he recognizes God's grace to promise him all of these things, to promise him the throne, the palace, a house that would that would last for generations after him, rest from his enemies, recognizing that he's receiving this as a gift. He doesn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. Slaying Goliath, the dragon, uh, the, the 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 giant. Go back and listen to my sermon to understand that uh, mix-up on, on that passage. Whenever he slayed the giant Goliath. That didn't earn him this. It was all an act of God's gracious blessing. God promises to bless David. And then what do we see in chapter 8? Victory after victory. Victory after victory. It says twice in, this, in chapter 8, the Lord made him victorious wherever he went. The Lord made him victorious wherever he went. And it says, and he was able to rest from his enemies. It's also helpful to take note. These neighbors of Israel, because what, what it's describing here, if we were to plot these, these different tribes that David's defeating on a map, they span from the very northernmost uh, territory of Israel down to the, su- the deep south. So in other words, David is accomplishing the uniting of the kingdom of Israel and the uniting of the promised land that God had promised to his people generations before this. God is accomplishing it through David's victories happening here, okay? The, these people, these neighbors, these neighboring tribes that have been around Israel for all these generations, they weren't neighbors with Mr. Rogers, Okay, these were not men of goodwill that they were neighbors with, but they were fierce, savage enemies of the Israelites and, uh, and, and and enemies of the name of God, the Lord. These victories that David is accomplishing is not against, like I said, people of goodwill, but people who would threaten his throne and the accomplishing accomplishment of God's promises. But what we learn through these victories. And through this unification of the kingdom, because it tells us twice, we learn that throughout all these victories, these achievements were not ultimately David's, but were the Lord's. Because we see the promise in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 we see the promise fulfilled. The Lord made him victorious wherever he went. And so here is the first lesson we learn from this passage. God keeps his promises to his people. God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who his yes means yes and his no means no, right? His word is true. You can rely on it. You know, we all know people in our life, and we we all know people in our life who even, they're nice, right? They're They're not all that bad, and they don't intentionally be deceitful, but you can't always really trust in their word, because there's flaky people out there and there, there are those who, uh, who, you know, sometimes they follow through, sometimes they don't. We all know people like that. Very often, you and I have probably been those people before. But then you maybe have been blessed to know one friend, or maybe it was one of your parents. Maybe it's someone you work with before who you can always count on them to do what they say. To be there when they say they're going to be there to be there at the time they say they're going to be there, right, to do that favor for you they said that they were going to do, to they extended an offer to you that one day when you take them up on it, that offer still stands, right? We've all maybe got, gotten to know, because that type of person is rare, and so maybe we've been blessed to know one, two, three of those kind of people. How much confidence do you have in that relationship with that person, the trust that's been established because you know that you can rely on their word, there's a lot of confidence in that relationship. It's a relationship that you can breathe in, right? Because you're not always worried on whether or not they're going to follow through. And you don't have to really guess their character because since they always follow through on their words, you know that what they show you and what they say about themselves and what they say about you to, and, and, and all, you can really trust in. And so what about the God who, who stays true to his word infinitely better than even the most trustworthy person that you have known? How much confidence can we have in a relationship with him? How much confidence can we have in his word and what he says to us in his word about himself, number one? And what he says to us in his word about us, what he says in his word to us about what he, what he promises to us? Last week for Easter, we looked at Psalm 23 as our guiding passage, and we looked at how Psalm 23 teaches us about the gift of God's presence being with us. And David sings in that psalm that he's able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? He says, for you are with me. You have a God who promises to be with you. And because he never breaks his word, you know it's always true no matter what you're going through. God is a God. The Lord is a God who keeps his promises to his people. But let us note this as well. David heard God's promise in chapter 7. Like I said before, God said it to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan goes and tells David. And then the whole second half of chapter 7 is David worshiping the Lord because of his promise. He's singing to the Lord. David hears God's promise, and then what does he do in verse 1 of chapter 8? Here's what he's not doing. Let's take a note what he what he doesn't do. He doesn't hear God's promise and then sit on his throne in his palace. Right. He doesn't hear it and then say God's promise to accomplish all these things for me. Wonderful. I can go take a nap. I can go sit back. I can live the easy life now and just wait for the Lord to strike down my enemies. He doesn't do that. David doesn't hear God's promise and then sit back and and wait for God through some miraculous divine intervention to smite down his enemies or to just let them decide to have a change of heart and turn away from him. David hears God's promise and then he gets to work. We should not miss that. He hears God's promise and then he goes to battle. He doesn't just sit around and wait. He gets to work. And then, in his faithfulness to what God has called him to do, faithfulness in what God promised to him, we should not miss that. Because he was faithful to what God called him to do, he experienced God's faithfulness in what God had promised to him. Likewise, God's faithfulness to His promises should give us the confidence that we need to do our work. It should give us the confidence that we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do, knowing that whenever we are faithful to what God has called us to do, we will experience his faithfulness in what he promises to us as we do the work. So the first thing that this means for us as we seek to apply this to our lives, what it calls us to do is cling to God's promises and then stick to your obligations. Cling to God's promises and then stick to your obligations. You might be asking yourself, well, what has God called me to do? And a lot of you guys, you're, you're either in college you're, or you're in grad school or you're starting your career, and so you're still asking a lot of these questions of what has God called me to do? And look, even if you're later on in life, we still often ask those questions. What has God called me to do, though? And I think we can have a deeper discussion on that, but a lot of the time, I think we really overcomplicate that question because here's, here's the answer, the, especially the answer you need today. What has God called me to do? look around you. Look around you. Where has God placed you? What, In other words, what offices has God already given you today? Are you a husband or a wife? Are you a parent? Are you a student? Are you a friend? Are you a brother? All of these different op- offices that God has already put on your life are callings that he has given you. Wherever you are in your life, God has a calling for you right there where you are. And with that calling comes obligations. It's really easy for us to get this, especially with, with the office of being a parent, right? If you're a parent, you know you've got a lot of obligations. Hey, look, I've got two little ones, okay? I, I fully understand. With being a parent comes a lot of obligations. That's one of your callings that God has given you. God doesn't just see it as an incidental accident that you're a parent now and like, and he says, oh, you're a parent now. All right. Well, I guess I can work with that. No, he, he brought you there. And it's the same thing with anything else in your life. Look, even if you're working a job that you think is just a transition job, you're looking to really get somewhere else in the future. And this is just to hold you by to pay the bills for right now. Look, even right there, God has called you. God has brought you there. And he has obligations for you there. So in all of these various obligations that we have in our life, we ought to look at them and and understand that these are obligations, these are responsibilities that God has given me. And all the things that he has told me to be and what it means to be a husband. And all the things he has told me and what it means to be a father, to be a friend, to be a son, right? And all these different things. To be responsible to those and then trust that he will bring the fruit from all these relationships. Let me put it this way. Christian work, and Christian work is not just ministry, quote-unquote ministry. Christian work is all those things that we do in our household and in our vocations as well. Christian work, whether it be in the church or in the household, in your workplace, at school, it's a lot like gardening. I I would like to be able to go out into my flower beds and just impose my will upon them and have, you know, all the weeds gone, flowers grow, the bushes perfectly trimmed and and, and hedged, but that's not how it works, does it? You know, I'm not a uh, plant scientist. I can't remember the term for being a plant scientist, all right? Uh, horticulturist, yeah, botanist, all right. Thanks, thanks, guys. Uh, So I'm not any of those things, right? But I know this. I know that if I want to have a nice flower bed or a nice garden, then I've got to go and I have to work the soil, and I have to plant seeds, I have to water them, I have to pull the weeds. In other words, if I want to have the fruit of a beautiful garden, there's all this other work that I need to do before the fruit comes. And it's really, really similar in our Christian work in the rest of our life. You know, I cannot just impose my will to have a healthy, mature church. So instead, what I have to do, called as a pastor, is to teach the word of God. Right? Teach the word of God. Install healthy leadership. Make disciples. Right? Uh, 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 oversee church membership. Do all these different things. And then through tilling the soil and doing what God has called me to do, he brings the fruit of a healthy, maturing church. If God has called you to be a parent, look how many of us parents would love to just be able to impose our will or snap our fingers and our kids start acting as we would love for them to act? But unfortunately, that's not how it works, does it? Instead, we're called to work the soil. We're called to, to be responsible to the obligations of what it means to be a godly father or mother and then trust that the Lord will bring the fruit. In so much of our lives, friends, th- th- this applies to your work too. And w- whenever you're putting together business proposals, where there's there's no guarantee that this thing's going to work out, but you believe that this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, you, you you've washed it in prayer, and so you're following through with this this new uh, vision for the business, the or proposal, or whatever it is. You're responsible to your obligations, trusting that God's going to bring the fruit. He's going to follow through with it. In so much of our life, we're called to do things where uh, where we don't have direct control over the results, but we are called to do the work and trust the results to the Lord, whether it's church planning, whether it's missions, whether it's parenthood, entrepreneurship, being a student, or whatever else. We have to cling to God's promises and then stick to our obligations. As the last thing that I just want to say before I move on from this point, something that I, I think is... Important enough just to say briefly if your life is bearing little fruit, if you look around in your household and there's little fruit, if you look in, your, in, in, in what you're contributing to the church and there's little fruit in what you're contributing and so on, if you look around your life and there's very little fruit, let me give you a hint. It is not because of a lack in God's faithfulness, it's usually because of a lack of our work. God has called you, God is always faithful. He he, he keeps his promises. Usually it's because we're not doing the work. You might say, well, what if I am doing the work? What if I'm feeling burned out because I've been working so hard? Well, let me suggest to you, maybe you're not doing the work that God called you to do if if you're so burned out and you've been working so hard with seeing little fruit. Maybe he has a plan, but you've been following your own. It might be that. Secondly, it might be this there might be tons of fruit all around you, but it's just not the kind that you were looking for. And so you need to, you need to take a moment to step back and reflect and start to, you know, we, we talk about count your blessings. Step back and reflect, and instead of just saying, Lord, I need to see this kind of fruit in this area, in this way, instead step back and say, I want to see whatever you're doing right now. And then you might realize that he has been doing all kinds of things, He's been bringing all kinds of blessings. He's been bringing all kinds of growth in your, in your household, in your friendships, relationships, wherever else. But it's, because it's just not in the one area you were looking, you weren't seeing it. Because he's always faithful. So cling to God's promises and then stick to your obligations. Let's move on. The conquest. When we look at chapter 8, we see that David's kingdom did not, was not secured by a popular vote. David's kingdom and his unifying of the promised land, his unifying, this is the very first time in Israel's history that the kingdom of Israel is unified from the north to the south with no other tribes, with no other enemies fighting for territory or oppressing the people, very first time ever. This all happened not by popular demand, not because the Edomites or the Amalekites or the Ammonites or any of these other kings saw David and said, whoo, what a guy, (laughs) what a leader. We like this guy. None of them did that, right? In fact, if you read closely, a lot of these fights were started because because they were the aggressor, and then David went and crushed them. David's kingdom was not established by popular demand. It was established by force. There's a hard lesson that I think we need to learn here. The second big point for today, God's kingdom will advance until the conquest is complete. God's kingdom will advance until the conquest is complete. I think what we need to note, which like I said, is a difficult lesson. It's it's one that we, we, uh, it's usually not at the top of our list of things we like to talk about and, and learn about. But we tend to water down the territorial ambitions of God, of the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is that God has promised that, the king, that his kingdom, which exists now on this earth, and it exists wherever there are believers, and it exists wherever there are churches, though there are still enemy tribes, right? And there are still enemies of the Lord which exist in, in the world. The, the Bible promises us, and it tells us that one day those enemies will be crushed. You see, the kingdom of God right now, today, operates on deeds of love and mercy that that's our that's our mo right we operate on deeds of love and mercy and the kingdom of god today advances through um through invitation and persuasion not by force we don't use force whether it be physical force whether it be political force uh, or, or any other type to advance the kingdom of god today because that's not how it works Today, the kingdom of God operates on deeds of love and mercy, and it advances, it moves, and expands. Its, its conquest today moves by gentle invitation and through persuasion. But one day, there will come a day whenever it will no longer move through invitation and persuasion, but it will move by, uh, by force. Whenever it will advance through not through mercy and love, but through might. Let us remember that Jesus, who, like we, like we talked about last week, described himself in his earthly ministry as having a heart which was gentle and lowly. The, the Jesus who we see so mercifully dealing with the, the, those who were lowest in society and the worst of sinners That this Jesus who treats us that same way today and who makes that same kind of gentle invitation to all people today, the lowest in society up to the highest, the worst of sinners to the most moral of people. He makes that same invitation. But let's not forget the image of Jesus that we have in Revelation of of what he will do whenever the time of gentle invitation is over and the, the time for the completion of the conquest has come. In Revelation chapter 19, John says, Then I saw the heavens open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written on it that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample on the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our Savior, who... uh, who, describes himself as gentle and lowly, will one day be this rider on the white horse wearing the robe and the tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings, Lord of lords, who will come with a sword to strike down those who rebel against him and oppose him. After this passage here, it says, it said that all the nations and all the kings of the earth gathered together to bring war against him, and he struck them down. He, he accomplished the conquest God's kingdom will advance, like I said today, by invitation and by persuasion through deeds of love and mercy, but one day with the King of kings and Lord of lords who administers justice, he says. It's a sober reminder, but it's something that we cannot neglect, and we cannot uh, pretend as though it is not there. What it means for us, though, as we read what's happening here and how David's kingdom moved and what it points us forward to and how one day God's kingdom's conquest will be completed. What it should remind us of and point us to do is this. Submit to the king while there is opportunity. Submit to the king while there is opportunity. Like I said, that day will come whenever the king of kings and lord of lords will ride on his white horse to make war and to bring justice. But until that day, he invites us in gentleness he invites us in kindness. He invites us to uh, not, be, not become submitted to him through subjugation, but be submitted to him voluntarily. Because we see his loving kindness. We see his mercy for us. We see his grace. And so we willingly go and we lay ourselves down before him. And we even see a pattern of this in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8 shows us a pattern of responses to Christ, if we, if we use David as a placeholder for Christ. We see that there are the people in the kingdom who are already his, his willing subjects who follow him, and who, who, uh, who, you know, who, who cheer him on, and who are, and who are experiencing the, um, the blessings of his victories. Then there are those people who make war against the, him, and he crushes. He has victory over. But then we see then we see in the middle of this story this man named King Toy. King Toy, T-O-I. Uh, king Toy saw the, the victory and how the kingdom of God through David was advancing. But he was a Gentile king. Okay, this was not this was not an Israelite. This is a Gentile king who sees David's authority expanding. He sees his kingdom expanding. And so he instead becomes a willing subject of David, not because David subjugated him by force but because he chooses to. He, it says he sends his son Joram with many gifts of silver and gold and bronze to go and make peace with David and, and to um, make him a, uh, willingly make himself a subject of David. Now, I don't think that this passage is lifting up King Toy as a picture of biblical faith to us, but what I do think is doing, if we look in the greater pattern, is showing us that the king of God's kingdom, in this case David, but in our case Jesus, accepts the submission and worship of those who willingly come to him. He accepts those who hear his invitation to come and worship him who voluntarily submit to him, then those are our only choices. At the, at the end of time, one day whenever the kingdom of God is fully established, it is he, God declares that every knee will bow before him. Our only options are this. Will every knee bow because we have been subjugated by force? Because as it said in Revelation 19, the winepress of the Lord's anger was uh, released on us? Or will we bow our knee before King Jesus in willing submission because we recognize what he has done for us? You see, the reason that we have the opportunity at all, like King Toy, to be able to make peace, the reason that we have the opportunity at all to willingly submit ourselves before Jesus, and though we are his enemies, him receive us, as his subjects, and more than that, to adopt us as his children, to make us sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The only reason that we have that invitation open to us and the ability to do so is because Jesus received that wine press of God's anger poured out upon him. You remember whenever he was in the garden, before going to the cross, he said, can this cup be taken away from me? That cup that he was talking about is the same one that's being filled up in Revelation chapter 19, the winepress of the fierce anger of the Lord. It was the cup of God's wrath for sin, the cup of God's wrath for lawbreaking, for rebellion against him, the, the just and due penalty for our sin against the Lord. Jesus took it on himself. He received that punishment and that wrath on himself so that you and I, whenever we go to the Lord now, so that whenever we hear his invitation, we might hear it in the tone of love rather than the tone of wrath. So we might know that whenever we go to him, what we will experience and what we will discover whenever we go to the Lord is grace, not anger. What we will see when we go to the Lord, and the way that he will respond to us will be a response of favor and not rejection. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. Because of him, we get to receive favor, love, grace, if we go to the Lord now. If we go to the Lord now, submit to the king while there is opportunity. Like I said, in this passage, twice it says that the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. What did David do with all those victories? Did he just sit back and rest on his laurels? Did he set up statues of himself and throw parades for himself? In verse 15, it tells us what was the result of God making David victorious wherever he went. In verse 15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel. Administering justice and righteousness for all his people. What was the result of God blessing David so greatly? David was then a blessing to the people. David was not just a recipient of God's blessing. But he became a recipient and then conduit, channel of God's blessing from that, that he had received and then out to the people as he administered justice and righteousness for all the people. What does it mean that, that King David administered justice and righteousness for all of his people? It means that he, he properly fulfilled the obligations of his office. It means he was a good king. It means this. It means that because he was a good king, there was flourishing in the nation. There was flourishing, prosperity, and blessing for the people. Because that's what happens whenever there's a good king, where there's a good leader. We learn, we could, we could spend a lot more time on this, so I can't say much, but, you know, we also learn about leadership in this passage. We learn that, that weak men make bad leaders, and bad leaders make hard times. Anytime that there are hard times, whether it's because you have a, a, a weak leader who's in, who is weak out of their incompetence, or whenever you have hard times because you have an oppressive leader, one who uh, who, who is tyrannical, who is authoritarian, and who oppresses their, the people through force and excessive taxation and all these other things and, and through... Um, through compelling the kind of behavior that they want. Those kind of leaders are weak leaders too because they are weak in their insecurity and their need for all of that authority and power. And so they bring hard times as well. But the good man, the godly man, who is like David, has a heart after the Lord's, brings times of flourishing for whoever follows their leadership. David is a good leader who brings times of flourishing to the nation. You know, one of my favorite examples of this, we could go through a lot of different examples, but one of my favorite ones is in the final scene of The Lion King. Right, I, I'm a Disney. I'm a Disney fan, and I got little kids who who love watching all the shows. And so, if you've watched The Lion King recently, or maybe you remember the story that you know Simba uh, leaves the Pride Land, and so his uncle Scar takes over. But he is a tyrannical leader. He's an insecure leader, right? And so, because of him being uh, a weak person, a weak man, and an insecure leader, he becomes this authoritarian tyrant over the Pride Lands. And you notice that there is even. Uh, that there's physical changes, right? Where it was once covered in in grassy plains, now it's dirt. The sun doesn't shine, it's cloudy, and, 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 it, and there's less life than there was before. But then at the end of the movie, whenever Simba defeats Scar and he goes up and takes his place on the throne, what happens? The sun comes out, the grass comes back, all those animals and all the, the flourishing of, and life that was there before returns, and it's an image and a picture, you know, so beautifully done in an animation, but it's a a symbolic image of what happens anywhere that there is good leadership, anywhere that you have a, a, a good king, whether that be good leadership in the family, whether that be good leadership in churches, or even good leadership in a nation, blessing comes with it. And foremost, where there is godly leadership, where there is a leader who, like David, seeks to administer the justice and righteousness of the Lord. What does it mean to administer the justice and righteousness of the Lord? It means that every person receives what is their due. Good is rewarded and evil is punished. God's kingdom will bring flourishing to his people. And we as well can experience that flourishing today. Here's how. Because God has called you to exemplify his kingdom in whatever offices he has placed you. We already talked about this a little bit earlier whenever I said that look around at wherever God has you in your life. Consider what he has called you to do and how he has called you to act and how he has called you to treat others in those offices around you. You see, what we need to understand Whenever, whenever we come to read these passages of scripture and we read these stories that seem so far removed from us, in which, in a sense, they are, but we try to figure out what is what relevance does this ancient story of an ancient king defeating his all these peoples that I never heard of? What does it have to do with me? What we need to understand is that these stories lift up ideals and examples of of how we can live out our lives. And so, you and I are never going to be a king or queen, most likely, right? We're never going to be a covenant king. Most of us aren't even going to be small-time politicians. Yet, we can exemplify the kingdom of God in whatever offices God has placed us today. Whether you are a leader in a church, whether you're a father or mother, an employer, an employee, a student, a teacher, a brother or sister, whatever else it is, if you keep doing whatever is just and right towards the people who are around you and who are connected with you, in whatever capacity that you have, then the ideal of the kingdom becomes clear, and it brings blessing to those who are around you. So look at your life and consider what ways has God called me, in whatever capacity and influence that I have, to be a minister of justice and, and righteousness to those around me, so that there might be flourishing and blessing in their lives. In our church, as we all seek to contribute to the health and and, and unity and growth of this church, how can we bring flourishing here through acting as agents of justice and righteousness? In our homes, in our workplaces and schools, it applies to all and every sphere of life. Let me give you this last illustration just as one way to think of it. Imagine that you, let's say you're here in South Louisiana but you 're originally from you're originally from Florida, and you miss home and you miss all of the the orange groves and how you can just drive down the highway and see the oranges blooming on the trees and So here in Louisiana, you want a little piece of home and so you go out into your backyard and you carve out a plot and you till and work the soil, and then you get the seeds of some orange trees and you plant them there in the yard and maybe some other plants that are native to to that wild homeland of yours, and you bring them in and you plant them down in your, in your yard. And so there, even in the midst of South Louisiana, you've got a little piece of Florida growing there. We can do the same thing with the kingdom of God in our lives. We can take elements of the kingdom of God and, and transplant them into planting little gardens of what it looks like here in your life for the kingdom of God to grow and bring flourishing, to bring blessing, to bring fruit, to your life, and the life of those around you. Just like David was blessed so that he could then be a blessing, remember that in the gospel, the Lord has richly blessed you so that you might then go and be a blessing. So friends, how can you, going on today, going on this week, and even on from now, how can you be a king or a queen in the way that God has called you to be in your life? And how can you be a blessing to those around you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that the king who will one day come riding on a white horse with his sword of war, with his robe that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with eyes with flames of fire, Father, that this king, humiliated himself down to the point of death on a cross. So this king who we witness in power, we remember before we see him in that state, before we see him in his power and his authority, we see him in absolute weakness, in absolute vulnerability, in suffering. And we know and we are told that he experienced that weakness and vulnerability and suffering in our place. So we might join him in his army rather than be slayed by his sword. Father, I ask that you would help all of us. And if there are any of us in here today who have not submitted to you as their king, through the help of your Holy Spirit, give us repentance from our sin and faith to trust in the work of Jesus Christ so that our sins might be removed that we might experience that adoption. Becoming your sons and daughters and then co-laborers in your kingdom. In whatever offices that you have placed in our lives, spreading and implementing that kingdom through actions of justice and righteousness, through deeds of love and mercy, and through words of invitation and persuasion. Lord, we ask that you establish your kingdom here in Redeemer City Church and in all the places that the members of Redeemer City Church, and go. So we might see little transplants of your kingdom here in Lafayette, and that we will see flourishing come from your kingdom here. We pray all these things in the name of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.